Um, we're working our way through the book of Galatians, and if you're new to this, you can go back and listen to the teaching pretty much verse by verse, section by section, as we've looked through. Galatians is fascinating, and in terms of the great debate, when you look at, old, uh, when you look at the, the beautiful uh, scriptures of, of ancient times, you have to look at them and understand, well, what was the overriding message that the apostle wanted to communicate to the believers in Galatia at that time? And of course, the overriding message is this that you are justified and made right with God through faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, not through any other means. And what had happened was the church in Galatia had wandered off and become the prodigal church. Not only had they become the prodigal church, but they had also ended up having a divided heart and drifting away from the faith and not understanding the beauty that they were walking away from. And what was happening within that community was uh, at very best a dilution, but at worst that they were in danger of Paul, as Paul says, being cut off from Uh, Such a great salvation. Who has bewitched you? Have I labored in vain? These are the phrases that he talks about when he talks about trying to win back this this church to be uh, Bible-believing and gospel-centric and believing in the power of justification through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a great, great debate taking place. He, of course, in chapter 1, appears to his great, um, his great pedigree, his academic history, his journey of being a, a, a great Jew, but becoming a persecutor, but then meeting Jesus Christ and ministering and spending, what, three years in Arabia and then returning and meeting the church at Jerusalem and then recognizing that people were becoming Christians, that people were being mentored because because of, of his work and recognize that he carried a message of generosity, that he came to help them and alleviate their pain and their suffering. He speaks about in the book how he challenged Cephas, the apostle Peter, because Cephas had wandered away from the purity and the beauty of the faith. And he challenges them and says, we need to keep the cross centric. We need to keep it central to everything that we're doing. Why? Because it's only through the doorway of the cross that you receive the forgiveness of your sins. It's only through the doorway of the cross that you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the doorway of the cross that you receive eternal life. And Christ comes into your life and changes you. And so he explains to them the great Abrahamic blessing, chapter 3. That the Abrahamic blessing that you were not made right because you happen to be, you received the Abrahamic blessing. Then you follow the laws of Moses and then you become a child of Abraham and that you are blessed. But he explains to them that the Abrahamic blessing leads directly to Jesus Christ who inherits the blessing and then through his death and resurrection on the cross, all nations, all people of the world are blessed as a result of what Christ achieved on the cross. And the law, of course, is there. It's there to reveal our sin. It's there to restrain sin. 
And in fact, when you become full of the Holy Spirit, you want to live correctly and right and honor God and honor the moral laws. Not because of any sense of judgment, not because God is somehow looking down at you as a school teacher, but because you love God more than anything in your life. And as a result of you loving God more than anything in your life, you want to please him. And so he, he challenges them. He talks about the power of what we have received. He reminds them that we are sons and daughters, that we have inherited a great salvation, that we ourselves can cry out, Abba, Father, that we have a new identity, that we have been incorporated into the great family of God. In that sense, we were once lost and vagabonds, but God has welcomed us into his family and he's made us, as it were, royalty. That you and I are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's saying, you're giving all of this up. And the, here we land at verse 8. And as we look at verse 8 and consider these thoughts for a few minutes, what I really want to share with you in these verse 8 through to 11 is I want you to understand that Paul is talking about in these verses, he's talking about the tyranny of turning around and abandoning the faith. We live in an age where it seems it's so easy to turn around and to abandon faith. And Paul starts to speak to them. Now when you understand ancient texts, and as we try and understand the time that, that, that Galatians was written, of course, what we have to understand, for the ancient reader, when, he, when the writer mentions something, a little phrase or something, then all of a sudden, a whole narrative, a whole narrative appears behind that phrase. So, for example, in the ancient world, if you remember the story of Achilles, Achilles' heel, because of his arrogance and because of his boldness, even the mention of Achilles to, Greek, to the Greek word instantly told them a whole story, a whole metaphor, a whole moral, a whole, whole narrative that through that very word brings out a whole line of thought and understanding and depth. We have those things today. You mentioned the word Brexit to an English guy, and a whole narrative comes in our brains that we want to throw ourselves out of a window or something. And, and we're like a whole world, of course, on Friday, we left the European Union, the Britain did. And it comes, if you mention words, you know, whole narratives, there are stories behind a word. And to understand the scripture, it says, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those whom by nature are not gods. Instantly, using this construction of these verses, he's talking about the time in Egypt. He's talking about the time under Pharaoh. He's talking about the time when they left. And these powers, these influences, these gods who were not really gods, the Pharaohs, and what was happening is that they were thinking about, I'm going to turn away. We, we don't need this anymore. And there is a danger in our own spiritual life that we can decide one day 
that, that we know we, we believed in God, but we actually turn away from the faith. And each one of us, at times, can battle in that way. And what he's referring to was the time in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 to 4, and the story before that. When they've been brought out of slavery, and as they're brought out of slavery, they start to moan. They send spies into the land, and they see the great giants. They see the cities. They see those that lived in the land. But God had promised them this land. And, and yet they were afraid and they were fearful. And in verse 2 to 4, we have the narrative of the great grumble. They start to grumble. They start to moan at Moses. They start to say things like, wasn't it better in Egypt? We're going to die in the wilderness. These giants are too big. This situation is too large. And they start to moan and groan and grumble and think, no, we, we were better. This is frightening. This is, a, this is terrible. And we, we want to go back. We want to go back to slavery. Can I encourage you and just say that what Paul is trying to say to them is that you will never find peace. You will never find the answer in going back from where you've come. You'll only find the answer by always moving forward in your faith. You see, slavery is not the answer. You see, going back is never the answer. But the only answer that we should really have is to go forward with the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And that we keep moving forward. We keep changing. We keep growing. We keep experiencing God. Because Paul knew that if they go back to Egypt, of course, there's only bondage. And there's, the answer's not in the past. The answer's in the future. The answer's not in going back to slavery. The answer is pushing deeper into our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith is so rich, it's so glorious, it's so wonderful that God has more for you. That you can never go too deep into God. Each one of us in our journey, we can grow, we can move forward, we can allow God to change us and to speak to us and to move forward. But there's always the danger of thinking that it's better to do it another way. There's always the danger of going back. There's always the danger of deciding that I don't want to follow Christ anymore. That it's somehow better to live in this way. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. The pharaohs, in the view of the sphinx, in the shadow of the pyramids, you were these are not gods. This is not truth. It's no good going back. It's no good turning around. In fact, the real answer for a Christian is to keep going in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and keep moving forward. And, but now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, you're in this relationship, but you've got to keep moving forward. When I was thinking about this, I was reading St. Augustine. And as I was reading some of his words about his own personal battle as the, you know, the great bishop in North Africa, one of the most brilliant Christian minds of that whole era, 
And he wrote about his own battle to turn back. How things would come to him and would whisper to him. In fact, he puts it this way. He says, even as I move forward, trifling little things come my way and they try and drag me back away from Jesus Christ. I love that word, trifling. I mean, who uses the word trifling these days? I love it. In fact, I love trifles as well. I really do. Love trifles, custard and cream and fruit and all mixed up. People don't make trifles anymore. It's the work of the devil. And I love trifles. I just, if you're into trifles, I don't know. My wife is here, and, um, but she's not really into trifles, are you, darling? No. Um, no, I have to find trifles, you know, I don't know. I have to go back to England to find a trifle. Um, but I love that word. But it's, it actually means little things that come. There's little mixed up thoughts. And they come and they want to drag you away from Jesus Christ. And Augustine wrote, these trifling things come to me. They entangle me and they whisper and they tell me, are you really going to give me up? Are you really going to keep moving forward? Why don't you come back to bondage and to slavery? And that's always the battle for us as Christians. That the whisper and the trifling and the areas of our life will will draw us back and will lose our passion and our devotion for Jesus Christ. I can't explain enough how beautiful... And how glorious is the intimate relationship we can have with Christ. Of course, Augustine resisted the whispers. He resisted the trifling. He resisted these things and went on to, um, to be so beautifully and influential in the whole Christian world. And I, um, I want to encourage you. That when you turn your back on God, what you're actually doing is you are turning your back on the cross. And how, this is what Paul's saying, how can you turn your back on the cross? Verse 9. Let me explain something he's saying to them. Look at this. But now that you are know, that you know God. Isn't it amazing? That when you come to faith... We discover and we know God. But you can never stop the journey of knowing God. You can go where you are at this moment. You can go deeper and deeper into knowing God. You can go farther. You can know God. But the amazing thing he says is this, or rather, you are known by God. I may know God, and we preach it, come to Christ and know God. But he actually turns around and he says, but listen, listen, you are known by God. Think of that. This morning, you've come to church, and the preacher is telling you not just that you, you can know God, but he's telling you God knows you. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 says that before the foundation of the world, God knew you. He goes on to say that you are the apple of his eye. 
He goes on to say that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He goes on to declare that his everlasting wings cover you and that you've been invited into his kingdom and you belong to a new city and that you will live for eternity and that you will experience all of the new creation and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and there will be a city that cannot be shaken. You don't just know God or know about God, you are known by God. This morning you are known by God. And you are the apple of his eye. The foundation of the world. He knows you. And Paul is saying to that church in Galatia, why are you turning around? We all know people that have turned around. We all know people that have, have wandered away. I you know, once led a guy to Christ in at a gym I was, I was working out at and I'd been on the treadmill and I, afterwards I started chatting to him. I talked to him. We went and sat in the jacuzzi together. It's always good to evangelize in the jacuzzi. Because when they get saved, you can baptize them. It's brilliant. You know, went on and found Christ again and went on. To be in church ministry went on. But the little whispers and the trifles come. And the thoughts about comparative religion, the philosophies of the age, and the ideas that come and undermine us. Because real doubt starts with a lie. And it has always started with a lie. And the lie is this. Jesus is not enough. Or the lie comes and, and whispers to us. And we lose the sense that we have been saved. That God loves us. And the lie comes. The lie works. Started in the beginning with a lie. And if you're wandering away from the beauty of knowing God and being known by God, it is often because somewhere a lie has come to you and deceived you. And I ask you, what is that lie this morning that's working away? You have the authority to break the lie and to live in freedom. But there's always a lie. And the lie to Galatians was this great battle with these um, Jewish teachers that were telling them they had to be circumcised. They had to do this. They had to do that. They had to work harder. They had to get on the spiritual, as it were, the religious treadmill and keep working rather than just receiving what God has for them. Paul is agonizing. But now that you know or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Do you really want to go back to Egypt? I look at the, my own journey of how that in, uh, in every, any, every decade I can see how the Lord has taken me farther and the Lord has taken me deeper and the Lord has dealt things in my life and the Lord has sanctified me. He's turned me more like him. He's dealt with things. But do I really want to go back to those old things, to those old gods of Egypt, to power, to money, to sex, to all of these things? Do I really want to be consumed by the gods of this age and the gods of the world? Why would you go back? Because if you go back, what you end up is in slavery. 
You look at what the Lord does in your life. I look, look at my own life. In, the tw- in my 20s, the decade of my 20s, how God worked in me and brought that, that, that depth and that intimacy and how I stepped away from superficial Christianity and suddenly I started to go into a, a three-dimensional deep knowledge of God that I'd never experienced before. It wasn't just oh, sugar-coated candy, but it was depth and it was deep. In my 30s, how God ministered to me and formed me as a young father with small children and how God shaped and moved me. In my 40s, how suddenly I'd stopped caring about what people thought and I, the most important thing was to care about what God thought. And in my 50s, I can't believe that I'm in my 50s. God, how did I get here in my 50s? Have you ever asked that question? I know what some of you are thinking. I'm in my 80s. I'm wondering. I still feel like a 26, 26 year old, right? But I can't imagine after over 35 years of consistent faith, I can never imagine going back to the old forces and miserable things of my past because all they did was enslave me. And Christ sets us free. That's why we run set free. That's why I teach it. Because as a shepherd, I want to help you understand that through confession, through forgiveness, through deliverance, through understanding uh, healing and, and how Christ rebuilds our lives, each one of us can find the sanctification and the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. He says, I have come, Isaiah 61, to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom to the captive, to come, this is the year of the, of the Lord's favor, that the prisoners will be released. That's what it says on the tin. And let me tell you something, it's true. Christ sets us free. I have come that you may have life and have life to the full. And the problem is that sometimes we've somehow gone, I've come that you may have life, but that life is somehow just religious. But we're called to have life to the full. And so he says, are you really going to go back? Miserable, miserable forces. Miserable forces that enslave you. You are observing special days and months and seasons of the years you're doing all of this. But you know, it's not, it's not freeing you. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. He's feeling like a parent who's losing a child. He has mentored them. He has worked with them. He communicates to them. He goes on in the following verses saying, I came sick, but you treated me like an angel. You came and you looked after me and, and you treated it with joy. You received the message with joy. But now I've mentored you. And now I've raised you. And now you're willing to wander away from the beauty of your faith. Why are you willing to? Because the cost is too high. Because you know that when you follow Christ, you become an outsider, not an insider. 
You know that when you follow Christ, there is suffering and persecution. You know that when you follow Christ, people look at you in a different way. You know that in this culture of the Roman Empire, when you follow Christ, the cost, but you're believing like the lies of the Pharisees, the un- in, in Mark 9, the unleavened bread, the bread with the yeast, it's, it's, it's affecting you. It's polluting you. You're losing your freedom. You're losing your joy. And I'm agonizing over you. And I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back, church. I'm calling you back to, to, to the beauty of the crucified Christ. I'm calling you back to this statement. For I, Paul, no longer live, but Christ that lives in me. I am calling you back. I'm calling you back to simplicity and the beauty of of knowing God and being known by God. I'm calling you back. And the table is a place... And he says, if anything else, in verse uh, 12, he says, imitate me. I imitate Christ. I, this is the way. Look at me. Start to live like Christ. Start to be like Christ. Start to understand the beauty of Christ. And don't be drawn away. And I think the message today is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. But it's so easy for turning around. And I, for one, are not for turning. How about you? Don't turn around. Don't turn back to the miserable gods of the old life. Stare into the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ in your life.